0: The Echo Chamber, brought to you by the Holmes Reports and produced by the international broadcast specialist, marketers for DC.
1: Welcome to the Echo Chamber. So today we have a Boston-centric show for you all. Um, first, we're going to be speaking to Manny Vega of March Communications um, about podcasting. And then we will also have Matt Kelly on the show to talk about um, compliance and, and corporate reputation. Um, so first we're going to get started with, with Manny and the name Manny Vega might sound familiar to you guys, uh, because Manny is host to the popular and very good podcast hacks and flacks that we syndicate here in the echo chamber. Welcome Manny. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So I, I'll take this moment to tell our listeners if they don't know about, um, that, well, uh, well maybe to give them a little bit of background on, on hacks and flax I actually didn't know about hacks and flax until someone I, I'm guessing last year I think it was um, told me I should listen to it and I was actually like genuinely impressed with sort of the not only sort of the quality of the production but also the the guests and just sort of the, the quality of, of, of conversation about about the industry that you guys have on the show um, and then I think earlier this year you all were nominated for an innovation Sabre award Um so, yeah, right. yeah. yeah, and, and now you guys are here and you're our, our echo chamber, echo, echo chamber pot, um, partner. So, um, so it's been kind of a journey, huh?
2: It has. Yeah. <laughs> and we're really excited about that, by the way. Um, you know, that's a cool partnership. We just kicked off about a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so really great to kind of expand the audience a little bit and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been a bit of a journey. So, you mm-hmm. know, we started this, I want to say almost. Almost a year and a half ago, um, and yeah, it's been an interesting journey since then.
1: Yeah, and actually, I'm I want to hear a little bit about that. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of Hacks and Flax? And you know, because we're here. Well, I should preface this as with we're here to talk about podcasting and and the role. You know, what role PR agencies, communications, brands could potentially have in podcasting? Because obviously, it's just sort of blown up. Um, I mean, I think it's it's been it's been gaining popularity for some time now because it's sort of this means of 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 tuning into things that that don't require you know being stationary right i mean you can you can listen to a podcast at the grocery store you can listen to a podcast when you're on your when you're working out um you know people listen to podcasts when they're at work when they're doing assignments that i guess don't require a ton of a ton of focus um and then, of course, with cereal, the podcast, the spinoff of Amer- this American Life," that went sort of cra- you know went crazy popular in um, 2014, and, and you know since then we've seen a bunch more podcasts sort of emerge on the market. So anyway, with that preface, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about the genesis of, of, of Hacks and Flax?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned cereal, and actually we got started kind of uh, talking about our podcast, Hacks and Flax. Um, a little bit before Serial came out, so we were kind of almost on the cusp of that whole, uh, you know, podcasting explosion that happened in late twenty fourteen. But um, so, so for myself, you know, I've been listening to podcasts for I don't know, you know, four or five years now, probably, um, and for a lot of the same reasons that you just listed. So it's it's something I could listen to at work. It's something I can enjoy while you know working out or whatever. And I think that's uh, definitely one of the big reasons why the medium has has grown and why it's so popular. And why it's also kind of like beloved among those who listen to podcasts and enjoy podcasts. Um, And so, I had a friend here at March Communications, Jim Young, who was also a big podcaster, podcast listener. And uh, he and I, actually, before I even got hired here at March, we're talking about uh, podcasting. You know, as kind of like this this, enjoyable experience, but like a a really cool type of content. We're thinking like, you know once I got here in March because I started shortly after we started this conversation, it's like, maybe we should get a podcast going for March. You know, maybe that'd be a a good place for the agency to be. Um, and I think, you know, the discussions that we had, we kind of worked out that it was an interesting medium for us because, you know, as an agency, um, we try to do things a little bit differently. We try to be creative and, and experimental, um, especially with the, the agency corporate content strategy. Um, so podcasting felt like a good place, uh, to be. And so we started talking about it in probably September 2014, uh, talking about formats, potential guests, um, you know, just different topic areas we'd want to cover. And we were able to launch in January of 2015. Um, and so it took a few months to put everything together. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all came to be.
1: So, and so you hadn't, you hadn't hosted a podcast before Hacks and Flax. This is the first time that you'd actually actually done something like
2: this. Actually, it's um, not necessarily. So I actually had had been hosting a a podcast or co-hosting a podcast, I guess, um, just in my personal life. Uh, My wife actually hosts a podcast and she needed someone she could banter with uh, for those episodes. So I had been doing that for about six months leading up to um, the first conversations that Jim and I had around uh, podcasting. So it was something I'd kind of already been doing a little bit. And I think, uh, you know, I was eager to kind of do more of it. Jim was eager to get started with it himself, and so that's that's how it took off. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, I, I'm, tell me a little bit more about why you thought it was a good idea to have a PR agency, um, you know, ha- host a podcast. Because I, I, th- I think I've told you, I've told um, other people at March that I don't see a lot of PR agencies hosting their own their own podcasts, and it seems, I mean, there seems like there would be an opportunity there. Um, and so i 'm just curious a little bit to you know a little bit about the thinking did you did you encounter any resistance internally of just like well i don 't really know if that makes sense for us to put resources into it, and if so, mm-hmm. you know how did you make your case for it
2: yeah there wasn 't a ton of resistance. I think there was some um, uh, curiosity because it wasn 't necessarily it's not as you say you know you don 't see a lot of agencies doing it mm-hmm. it 's not necessarily an obvious um, an obvious place to be and so uh, when we first brought it up to um, uh, the founders here at March, uh, Martin Jones and Cheryl Gale, they were both, um, I mean, they're, they're open to it, but it was sort of like, okay, is that, does that make sense? Is that even, like, is it a difficult thing to launch? Is it gonna require us to spend a ton of time and effort into putting this together? Um, because of my previous experience doing this sort of thing, it was, you know, I was able to convince them that, no, it, it shouldn't be too difficult, and, you know, Jim and I are willing to take it on, and, and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there wasn't a ton of, of selling um, there. And I think also, you know, to their credit, Martin and Cheryl are, are often able to kind of identify a nice opportunity uh, when they see it. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting thing to be able to say, you know, we are a PR agency with a podcast. Um, and if, if not one of the few then maybe even, you know, the only one out there with a podcast, <laughs> um, there may be more now, I'm not, I'm not sure to be honest, but um, at the time, I think we were one of the few, the few who were thinking about it. Um, it, it sorry, and you, you mentioned like, kind of why do it? Um, I think, you know, a big, a big Goal originally was to get like sort of a slice, allow listeners to get like a slice of our agency's personality. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I love most about podcasting, uh, and I guess you could really say it about just audio in general, so, you know, radio, sh- it, you get the same sort of benefits. Um, you know, good shows have a certain personality or quality to them. So, you know, if you, you get to know the hosts well, you get to know the format of the show. Um, if it's really engaging, you get to kind of, it, it, you almost see like a community develop around it. You know, if, if you follow a certain show, you might uh, contribute yourself in some way, or, um, you just see all these aspects of the community grow around it. So there was, there was some appeal of, you know, can we build that kind of thing with a podcast for March?
1: So you mentioned that initially you guys kind of wanted to be, you know, wanted to, to showcase sort of a slice of life at, at March, but you all have really tackled a lot of different subjects on, on the podcast. I mean, I, and that's one of the things that impressed me with it. I mean, you've talked about, I mean, it, it hasn't just been like, let's showcase March. It's actually been, right. I think you've, you've talked about journalism, um, you know, media and that landscape. There's been, I think there was one just on like, on like pop culture, right? I mean, there was one that was, yeah. And, um, and there were, I think you did one recently on measurement. You've done ones, you know, after trade shows. So, I mean, what sort of guides you thinking around what would be a good topic for, for your audience?
2: Uh, well, when I'm thinking about topics, it's often um, the thing that excites me the most is if there's something sort of uh, unique, different, experimental, um, unfamiliar to people. So, for example, uh, just recently I've done an interview that for a future episode about the uh, Boston University PR Lab. Now, this is something that others in the industry may be aware of. I was not necessarily aware of it beforehand. My background isn't strictly in PR. I come from more of a content marketing uh, background, so this was sort of a new thing to me. And so I was exposed to it just through some of the work that March has done with the PR lab. And it's, it's sort of, you know, it's like a student-run public relations agency at BU, uh, and they do a lot of interesting work, and they have access to a lot of interesting uh, resources, like the Communications Research Center, which is, they do all sorts of crazy, um, really in-depth research focus groups type stuff there. Um, and so, as I as I learned about this concept, I thought, okay, this is going to be a good podcast. I should I should have her on Amy Chandler, who runs the, the PR Lab, on because um, it's new to me certainly, and I think it would probably be new to a lot of our audience. And even if it's not new, there's a lot about what goes on with that group that I think would be beneficial for folks who are uh, working in an agency or working in house, or even people who are looking to hire uh, students, looking to hire you know their next uh, their next intern or their next. Um, you know, junior uh, staffer. Um, you know, what are these students in school right now expecting from a work environment? You know, what are they looking for from uh, their next agency and that sort of thing? So, uh, you know, that topic excited me early on, and I thought that's that's worth a podcast. Um, and then other things that we did that were, that were kind of unusual. I mean, we have a, a, a colleague of ours, a our former colleague of ours, who worked at a, uh, a social listening company here in Boston, Crimson Hexagon. And so we thought uh, this is like a new field. This is a new technology that we're not necessarily aware of there may be members of our audience who aren't aware of it either and so we thought you know take us for a, a test drive show us let's do on air you know kind of a, a demo almost uh, of this solution but you know not just product focus it's sort of like tell us about the methodology behind this tell us about what social listening is all about what are the benefits what, do, what, do our, what does our audience need to know um, so when I'm thinking about topics it's, it's that sort of thing um, I, I didn't mention you know slice of life here at March but it's not like a you know I think you get that through the personality of the hosts and the guests that we have on, um, and, and we get to showcase our expertise somewhat. But I'd much rather actually um, be learning through the podcast, and I think as, as I'm learning, the audience learns as well, uh, and it benefits everybody. That to me is is what makes it a pretty good topic.
1: So, um, I mean, one of the things about podcasting, right? Is I mean, and, and it requires a certain style of storytelling to be engaging. Um, so, tell me a little bit about you know, how you all, because one of the things that stands out to me about Hacks of Blacks is you all usually have sort of, um, it, 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 you know, you kind of set the stage in a really casual way. There's a lot of banter. There's a lot of sort of just kind of conversations that you, you can tell are sort of like off the cuff. And then, you know, before you guys kind of dive into the meat of, of, of the podcast. So I'm curious to know sort of what, you know, what, was it, was it did you make a conscious choice about this is this is kind of how we want the tone and the, and the storytelling sort of style to be and then um and then also just maybe walk us through the process of putting together a, an episode
2: yeah sure um in terms of tone absolutely it was it's always meant to be a pretty approachable and, and, and personable show um hopefully you know I hope the audience feels that way too and uh you know back when uh, Jim was my co-host up until just recently Um, and yeah, we would always kind of start the shows in that way. So keep it pretty casual, keep it pretty conversational. And now going forward, as I continue to do episodes uh, and bring people in from the agency, you want to kind of retain some of that, uh, keep things conversational, keep things, um, kind of light because as I said, you know, I think my personal favorite thing about the shows that I listen to is that you do feel sort of a a level of engagement and a connection to the, the hosts of the show. You know, I listen to these shows, not just because they, they, you know, entertain me, or because they they're inf- informational, but because I like the people who are doing the show. Um, so you, that's, you know, when I talk about showing the personality of March, we have a lot of interesting characters in house here. You know, you want that to kind of shine through from the podcast. It's it's a good opportunity to show, um, you know, that side of your personality uh, while also still being you know, informational and, and beneficial in that way to your audience. Um, so that that tone is definitely it was definitely a priority for us. Um, it, it's kind of something that we. That we keep in mind not just through the podcast, but with, you know our blog and, and anything else that we produce. Um, but other than that, in terms of how you how you kind of put together a show from a storytelling perspective, it, it, I think it really depends on what the goal of your show is. Um, you know, if you if you look, you know, out there in terms of like what's out there for podcasts, there are some that are more like practical. It's like how tos, um, you know, interviews around uh, you know sharing industry expertise or anecdotes. Um, so, like, just—I mean, just us talking right now. This is more of like a practical how-to or or, or, or whatever, um, you know. But there might be more conversational, these sort of like roundtable podcasts. I think of like a This Week in Tech, which is obviously just a kind of a bunch of pundits in the room talking about uh, the the news of the day. Um, you have like the more strictly storytelling podcasts, like Serial, uh, This American Life, which is one of my favorites. It's it's like an audio narrative, um, and those are more just strictly storytelling based. Uh, and there's even those that are like personal journals so you might have something like uh, one of my favorite podcasts is, is WTF from Mark Marin and his is just like interviews with other comedians and they're almost like a personal journal. what was your personal j- journey through com- uh, through comedy um, so it really depends on what your your goal is and what kind of uh, content you're trying to put out there uh, with your podcast but there's different kind of storytelling techniques within each
1: So a question I'm sure a lot of both a lot of peer agencies would have about doing their own podcast is, is the time commitment, because, <laughs> excuse me, it, it can be a bit of a, I mean, most peer agencies are, are sort of stretched for resources when it comes to doing things like, you know, developing their own content. So what kind of time commitment does each episode typically take?
2: Yeah, it's definitely uh, an important thing to think about. So for us, it, it, you know, it can get out of control pretty quickly if you, if you let it. So a lot of the time commitment is saved in the preparation, obviously. You know, you want to make sure that the interview is, has been recorded really well, and, you know, I'll normally set aside a full hour for the interviews, but even, even though I may only get, say, 30 minutes of audio uh, because I want that extra time for uh, planning and prep and, and making sure that the recording is, is really going to be nice. Um, and so if I have a good, clean recording, then generally it's pretty easy to edit it. Uh, that might take, depending on how carefully you edit, uh, you know, a few hours or it could take all day, really. <laughs> I mean, we've had some episodes that took a really long time because we didn't get the recording conditions quite right when we recorded it. So it required a lot of extra work to go back and uh, make sure it was as good an episode as possible, and it was enjoyable for people to listen to. Uh, and I'm I'm really picky about that sort of thing myself. So um, at this point, though, we've got kind of a good flow going, where um, we've got the right gear, we've got the right setup, and uh, it's it's pretty easy and, and effortless once you've actually done the recording. You know, that might take a half hour to an hour, um, and then you do your editing, maybe an hour to two. Um, plus publishing, you know, so it's it's something you can do in a day. I, you know, I've been able to do that within a half day or so. Put out a new episode, um, but of course, depending on you know how careful you want to be with your edit, it could go faster. It could go it could go longer. Um, it is something that you have to kind of plan for, though. So it is it's kind of part of my my job now is to plan out kind of when am I going to do these podcasts because it is a priority now for our agency, uh, especially as our, our profile has risen. As you mentioned, we've you know beginning on. Uh, the radar for a few of these industry awards. So it's like, you know, we've got to have a a good episode out. Um, And so I'm, it's part of my normal like planning process, trying to figure out when to do it, how to do it, and and make sure it's happening consistently.
1: What kind of reaction do you get from clients on on the podcast?
2: Um, It's been interesting. So it depends on on the client, of course, but I mean, all positive so far. Um, And it's actually kind of useful because We've had clients who've asked questions about a particular topic, and it's nice to be able to say, "Oh, actually, we did a podcast about that. If you're interested," um, and you kind of direct them to what you know. Twenty minutes into this, this episode, you'll hear us talk about that topic, um, and, and so that's that's been good, and you know, it's it's positive. It's you get a little bit of a. I think the funny thing about podcasting and the industry as a whole is, for those who are not familiar with it, it can be a little bit like, "Okay, how do I how do I listen to this? Do I?" You know, is it on my phone? Is it on the computer? Like, I don't know how this works, uh, so you might have to explain that part. But, um, but yeah, the clients the clients react well to it. Uh, we'd like to get clients involved in recordings if we can. Um, scheduling wise, that can be a little bit tricky and all that. But um, yeah, it's been positive.
1: Do you um, have you have you had any clients ask you, "Hey, should my should I be doing this for my own brand?" Um, and 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 if so, so or, or even even if they haven't, I mean, what are the circumstances under? Which you would maybe recommend that that a client start their own podcast?
2: Yeah, we haven't um, we haven't produced a podcast for our client, but we have actually talked to clients, uh, as you say, who were kind of interested in the medium, um, and they wanted to know more about kind of how it works, how to get involved, and uh, you know, I would say we worked with them on kind of explaining, basically, you know, what do you need in terms of gear, what do you need in terms of content. I think is the biggest thing. Um, and kind of how to wrap your wrap your head around like the logistics of it, and I, I would say kind of what I, what I say to them is, you know, it, depending on your industry, if there's a strong community within within that industry, you might have a great opportunity then to um, kind of contribute to that community through a podcast. So for, uh, one example I use is like software development. Uh, I, I and this is just my personal observation of, of software developers. Um, they're always looking for knowledge. You know, I know a few who always are on forums, uh, Reddit, uh, blogs. They'll, they'll go to workshops. They'll go to trade shows, whatever, uh, because they want to, you know, learn more about their world. They're passionate about their world. Uh, they want tips. They want to learn new skills. They want to just find out what's new and interesting in their world. Um, and so, you know, software development to me is like, okay, that's that's a compelling world for a podcast. If there's a company that that does development and is willing to kind of contribute to their community. Uh, with a podcast, you know, not not just talking about here's what our product is, not just talking about here's what our expertise is, but you know, maybe speaking to other developers, maybe speaking to other companies even, um, and, and kind of being that place where, you know, like a platform where where people in your audience can come and, and learn from. Um, I think that's a great candidate for a podcast. So, uh, and I don't know, maybe there's a ton of software development podcasts already out there. I'm sure there are, uh, but that's just like kind of one example. So I would say you know, a community is what you need. Um, and if it's an engaged community, because, uh, you know, I think plenty of us probably work in, in in industries that are, you know, there's a community, but it's like less engaged. You can't really get them to, to actively seek out content or anything like that, so that's kind of tough. Um, and then if you're personally motivated to kind of be a, a challenging voice in your industry, uh, you want to share your expertise, but you also want to, uh, you know, learn from your audience, I think that's a great opportunity to, to have a podcast. And not every company is going to have all that, um, so it depends.
1: So, what are the some of the pitfalls of? I mean, now that you've had some experience doing this, you you you're an avid listener of podcasts. I mean, is there anything that either you've done that's that that just has not worked? Um, that you know that's been kind of a lesson learned, or um, have there been you know other podcasts that you've listened to and that you just have not been able to get into? Because of you know some some reason, I mean, are, what are the common sort of pitfalls or mistakes around podcasts that you've seen?
2: Yeah, I think um, from my personal experience in, in, in actually you know publishing podcasts, uh, overcommitment is definitely a problem early on. So you have a lot of great ideas, and you kind of want to jam all of those ideas uh, into a show, but then you have to think about what's repeatable. So you know we've done this great first episode; it's got. All the bells and whistles—it's got so many, you know, different factors to it. Um, but then you've got to do it again next week or the following week or whatever. Um, and so suddenly, you know, what what should be kind of a fun and, and enjoyable thing to put together is like really a burden. Uh, so you've overcommitted. You've turned what should be like a, a two a two hour edit job into a two day edit job, and, and it's hard to turn around an episode. So um, that's just from my personal experience, kind of what's difficult. I think in listening to shows. I guess if there's a show that I, I, I can't get into, um, it, I guess it comes down to really the content of the show. Um, and, and there are shows out there where the, where the guests are, or rather the hosts are engaging, they have good guests and whatnot. Um, but, it, you know, I, honestly, it's kind of funny, but like marketing podcasts, I struggle with sometimes, even though it's kind of the world that I'm in. Uh, I do struggle to kind of keep engaged with them because I feel like not every show is engaging. Not every show is going out of its way to be Um, You know entertainment to me because even though it is trying to learn something it is kind of you know I'm doing this on my on my downtime. I'm doing it as part of my commute I want something that's gonna keep me kind of mentally stimulated So that's why with Hacks and Flags. I always try to kind of prioritize You know not just silliness for the sake of it But like making sure we're injecting personality into it making sure it's still a fun thing for us to record So that way it's a fun thing for our listeners to listen to Um, And that's the thing, you know, that's what I would just kind of watch out for if you were to kind of get into that world
1: so did I mean, do you consider sort of a difference between a podcast and just like an audio interview? Um, I mean, I mean, do you consider anything, I mean, is it the medium that matters or is it, or is it the format more that matters in terms of whether something is, you consider it to be a podcast or you just consider it to be, you know, an online interview?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like I get really hung up on the word podcast. And so I do think of when you use that word, I think of it in a very specific Way I think of it as you know,
1: uh,
2: basically an audio show that you you listen to. Um, it, I I always listen to it on my phone. You know, people say, "What website do I go to to listen to your podcast?" I say, "Go to iTunes and listen to it on your phone." Uh, but you can go to online and listen to it, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I I think of the word podcast in that very specific way. It's like, you know, I, I go to the podcast app on my phone. I download the podcast. I subscribe to it. I listen to it regularly. Uh, but in reality, it's really just, it, you know, what is it? It's just a serial. Um, audio program right so in, in some cases we've had a uh, who've asked for example, you know how do I have uh, x number of audio files? how do I make a podcast out of it and I say, well are you, are you really trying to create a podcast are you trying to create a show you know it's a program it's something you're going to continue contributing to over time or are you just trying to publish these audio interviews because you could just publish the audio interviews you know through a ton of different ways and, and not necessarily have a podcast it's just like these these one off uh, things that you've published and that's great that's, there's definitely a place for that but I guess when I think of a podcast specifically I think of a program something you're going to continue contributing to something that's going to grow um, and it's, it's kind of over a longer term commitment
1: so you know you mentioned how much you like This American Life and and mm-hmm. sort of these these narrative style podcasts is that something that you think you'll experiment with on Hex and Flags? I mean, I mean, is is there even room in in because you know yours is is a bit more of sort of a how to, right? I mean, people yeah. come in. I mean, is there room for that style of storytelling and sort of a marketing block as a podcast? And I I asked this because you mentioned that you you've struggled with kind of engaging with marketing podcasts, and I've actually heard other people say the same thing. And so I so it makes me wonder. Like, I mean, maybe marketing podcasts need to rethink. How they're telling their stories. I, I mean, yeah. Have you? No, I, yeah. I definitely
2: think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and yes, I would experiment with that. Um, so I have a few ideas around that. Uh, some events coming up this year that I think would make good candidates to do some kind of on-site recording at um, and, and present something in a different way. And even some client work that we have in mind. Um, I feel like there's some good opportunities there to, to record something different. Um, and that's why I've always, you know, we try not to define the show in any one certain way. So that way there's always flexibility to do something different. So we did, you know, we we always call it a live episode. episode. It wasn't really a live episode. We recorded it, but we also were doing a a Periscope session, a Google Google Hangout and um, having that all going on at the same time while we were recording this episode and we were kind of game planning how to create a social media strategy for our podcast. That was an episode we did last summer. And that was kind of different. It was a little bit how-to, but we weren't we were just getting instructions in the moment on what to do for our podcast. And it was it was different and it wasn't strictly like what you might expect from a a how-to-based marketing podcast. And I think that's that's the kind of thing where I'm open to any idea. So yeah, if there's an opportunity to do kind of an episode where it's a narrative, it's something, you know, maybe an experience that we're kind of chronicling and presenting to our audience you know, of course it has to have some benefits. So there, there should be something that they're learning from that experience. But, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's kicking up there and right? it's definitely an idea and, um, <laughs> something I hope to experiment with.
1: Yeah, that's, um, well, I'm curious if you'll tell me a few other, I mean, you, you mentioned quite a few podcasts that are sort of your, your go-tos, you know, Mark Maron, This American Life, you mentioned you liked Serial. Um, are there any other podcasts that, that you feel like if someone really was trying to understand this medium and they really wanted to kind of dive in because it, and I've, and I've had people say this to me before that it's somewhat overwhelming because there are so many out there. I mean, are are there, I guess maybe this will be a two part question. um, What are sort of the, what's top on your list of sort of must listen to podcasts. And the second thing is, is, and we can talk about this after is, I, how, if, if, if there, if there's a peer agency out there thinking, you know what, I want to start my own podcast. How do you get an audience going? Because it is such a crowded field out there. And if you don't already have a built-in audience, you know, if you're not a editorial company where you already have a built-in audience, how do you, how do you sort of mind that, um, that group of people to engage with your podcast? So this is
2: two, two part question. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first question about the, um, the first part rather about kind of like what I listen to, um, I would say for me personally, I always consider this American Life like my quintessential podcast, go-to podcast just because um, it, it is an audio narrative. It's just it's it's just a story or three stories told over an hour, um, but they do it well and they know how to kind of tap into, I think, the best qualities of the medium, the best qualities of just recorded audio, um, you know, the ability to tell a story, the ability to kind of affect your listeners in a certain way. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's amazing. But as you said, it's not necessarily a, a concept that can always be applied to every industry. So if... If you're trying to do a marketing podcast like that, you might have had trouble. Um, but there are other shows that I think do things differently, and, and I think it's good to get a sample of everything. So, um, for example, I also listen to um, this, this show. It's I mean, it's it's pretty popular one, Hardcore History, uh, where Dan Carlin he will just kind of um, explain this. He I, he calls himself he says he's not a historian, but he's basically a historian. He's done a lot of research on these uh, famous periods of time, and he'll basically explain all the intricate you know, political uh, machinations of World War One, for example. He did like a five-part series on World War One, and each episode is about three hours long, too. So this is a real big commitment if you're trying to get into it. But um, but it's fascinating because he gets into levels into a level of detail that you you just really can't even fathom, and it shows kind of the potential for this medium to you know educate in in a very specific way. Um, and then other shows, you know, it's interesting. This I, I'm a baseball fan, and there's a show out there called Effectively Wild. It's a it's a baseball podcast. And the two hosts um, are kind of a decent model for what we try to establish here at Hacks and Flacks. And so there's a lot of banter. It's it's pretty casual, but they're both they're, they are both very very intelligent people when it comes to baseball, and, and are able to break down the, the the sport in a really like just intensive way. And so that's a good you know example of a show that injects a lot of personality um, into what can sometimes be a dry topic because it's also like the analytics of baseball. It's not exactly like you know who's going to get traded for who. It's 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 math, which can be a little bit boring, <laughs> depending on, on your opinion. But um, so those are some of the shows I've listened to. I mean, there's other stuff like the Bill Simmons podcast, which he's he's a good interviewer, so that can be a kind of a good guide for people. Um, but my podcast list is very uh, heavy on pop culture and sports and that kind of thing. So it it uh, yeah, there might not be a whole lot of overlap for, for folks out there. But uh, oh, and of course, This Week in Tech is a good one. It's like a community. It's, it's what I, I said before, it's like a, a roundtable panel discussion. Uh, So if you if you follow the world of tech and and tech news, it's a great uh, conversational podcast where different reporters and different folks in the world of tech are talking about these big issues. So um, that's another great example. But um, your question about kind of how to how to cut through, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I would say you know you have to kind of rely on your on your creativity as a marketer and and you know a communications professional professional um, and realize what's out there first, and so. You know, when we got into it, though we were maybe one of the first agencies, let's say, in the Boston area, let's say, to get into to PR podcasting, we certainly were not the first to get into like a marketing this this world of communications podcasts. There were a ton out there, and so what we could do is look at these podcasts and say, okay, we know exactly what we don't want to do because it's going to be really hard to build an audience when you already have all these entrenched, um, you know, programs. I mean, these, and some people might say, yeah, you might like this podcast because it's similar to this one, but to me, it's hard to play in that space. It's hard to, to differentiate just when you're you're offering basically the same type of show. So, though we do follow that model a lot of times, we do have pretty much straight interviews with experts in the field. We try to get outside of that that zone every once in a while and do something a little bit experimental. So, and that can just mean whatever comes to mind. I mean, that, that's how the social media ha- uh, listening episode happened. Um, that's how our social media planning episode happened, um, and, and the other stuff that we have planned. You know, it's 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 really think about. Are there certain experiences that your company is involved in, or that you personally are involved in, that are uh, it, they can be unique or they can be relatable? But putting it to audio and getting it out there via a podcast might be something that no one else has done yet. So why not think about that? Uh, and that, that's how I would think about it. You really want to just you know deliver something where people know they're getting something unique from you that they couldn't get from another podcast. And it seems it sounds obviously simple to say it like that, but uh, it just requires a lot of creativity.
1: So what's um what's next for hacks and flax? What do you ha- what can you tell us? Can you preview anything that's sort of coming down the pipe?
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. So as I said, we just recorded a podcast about the BU, BU PR lab. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about that one because we're also going to um just explore follow-up uh, opportunities with them. And so they've got some great event coming up in November. Um almost like a hackathon, but for, for PR and communications pros. And so, I kind of want to get involved in that and see if we can do something there where, uh, where we are recording. And you know, maybe that's an opportunity to do kind of that narrative style that you mentioned um, or some just different type of you know, experiment with format a little bit. Um, so, we've got that planned for that. And we're recording some other episodes internally just about research uh, and some other topics that we work on here at March. But um, that's as, as far planned as we have right now. Other than that, I'm kind of surveying the landscape, seeing what we have coming up as an agency. Uh, especially for industry events and just kind of other uh, unusual experiences um, or unique experiences that you know, I'm going to be able to have personally with some of my clients, and you know, kind of vetting those for opportunities for podcasts. So whether it's you know a travel opportunity, maybe we can turn that around. Uh, talking to a client about a specific uh, campaign that they're having that's you know really impressive or really worth sharing, um, you know, those could be good episode opportunities as well. So uh, I have just got my ears open my eyes wide and looking for other for other things we can put to audio
1: good stuff well thanks for thanks for joining us today manny and for giving us some insights around sort of hacks and flax and just for our listeners we will have in our call notes we'll um sorry in our show notes we'll have um some links to hacks and flax and and some of the shows that uh that manny talked about so it will be easily accessible now for the second portion of the show we have matt kelly who is CEO and editor of the newly launched Radical Compliance uh, blog, which he launched after stepping down as head of, um, or I guess editor and publisher of Compliance Week late last year. Welcome, Matt. Hello, Arnie. And you are joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. That is correct. So, so, so before we actually jump into our conversation about sort of the intersection of compliance and corporate re- reputation, I've got to ask you a question about um, something that I've noticed on your on your blog and you have a section on compliance memes. and I think your Twitter handle is also compliance meme. So is there like a massive demand for compliance memes out there? Like what, what's, what's the backstory there?
0: Uh, let's see. The backstory is that it started one day when I had too much time on my hands and I was just kind of goofing off and I put one out. Uh, In theory, they are the compliance meme of the day where I poke fun at corporate accounting or corporate legal or compliance issues. Uh, In practice, I probably get out maybe one or two a week, even though it's billed as the meme of the day. People like them. They're easy enough for me to pump out there. I have heard through the grapevine, that occasionally my memes have wound up in uh, board presentations. I don't know if that's true. That's what somebody tells me. Um, and I have uh, daydreams of making a meme calendar, but uh, they're definitely a nice slice of humor for what is often seen as a very boring thing. So I was like, what the hell? I'm going to keep on going as long as I still have those ideas.
1: Nice. What... So so I suppose if if any of our listeners want want to follow your compliance memes they would they could they could go to your hashtag your Twitter hashtag at compliance meme I'm, I'm guessing is that is that the best place to keep up with these
0: well you can follow me on Twitter at compliance meme yes and then if you look online the hashtag is uh, daily compliance meme uh, they float around they're on LinkedIn they're on Twitter they're uh, some of them are on my website at this point there are probably a couple of hundred of them they're out there. I always welcome other people submitting ideas to me, or come up with one on your own. You can hashtag it, just let it out there for public domain. The, the more, the merrier.
1: Nice, nice. Well, interesting. Um, well, let's let's talk about let's talk about this intersection of compliance and, and corporate reputation. So, I'll, I'll I'll start it off sort of broadly. Then, so we often hear, right, that a like a a solid corporate reputation depends on corporate behavior, not corporate communication. So in, I guess in your world, how do you, how do you define good corporate behavior?
0: Um, I define it as a bit more than not breaking the law, uh, which is the baseline, you know, that all companies should not break the law. Uh, I, most of the time when I deal with a lot of large corporations with, you know, multi-national uh, jurisdictions and operations. The, the, the truth is, most companies at some point, they do break the law. That is a fact of life for big corporations. But you should be striving not to break the law. But beyond that, there is a lot of, you know it when you see it, not good behavior, um, not good in corporate governance, uh, not good around executive pay, not good around corporate ethics. Uh, I mean, I could give any number of examples, but you know, very recently from CEO Pay, that's sort of an easy one to take, uh, BP had their biggest annual loss ever last year, and then they gave their CEO a 20% pay raise as they were laying off 10% of their workers, and their shareholders had specifically voted against that. Um, it's not a binding shareholder. vote. They were just saying to the board, we really think this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do it. The board did it anyways. That doesn't look good. Uh, it doesn't look good to employees. Doesn't look good to business partners or the public. Um, there are probably other examples. Uh, Tesla just last week, they were called out for having customers sign non-disclosure agreements. When you take a Tesla in for repairs or improvements, because Tesla doesn't want people to know exactly what product defects, or glitches it might have. Is that against the law? Arguably, no. Arguably, yes. There are some other people, I'm sure, who would say that is definitely against the law. You know, Eventually, I think that will have to be settled in more formal ways. But there's a lot of gray areas where still compliance and ethics transcends just the letter of the law to just good corporate conduct and there's a lot of companies they still choke on that from time to time.
1: Yeah, so the the Tesla example is a, is an interesting one because that seems like in this day and age where um I mean enforcing something like that seems seems really difficult if not impossible. Um just there's just so many different ways in which people communicate. Um I mean if you talk I mean what what do you think about the enforceability of something like that? I mean I mean let alone just like the reputational impact of of, of that.
0: Well, there are a couple of ways to look at that. And already, the regulators who would normally keep an eye on Tesla, and that would be groups like the Consumer Products Safety Commission, the National Highway Transportation Safety Board, they have already made it abundantly clear. Tesla is not going to enforce that against anyone who wants to go to regulators with safety concerns. And they have just flat out said, no way. Um, that, that We have seen that in other industries and other companies before where they've tried to put non-disclosure agreements on employees or customers so broadly that you might think I can't go to a regulator and tell them that this company is a big problem The regulators have landed on with both feet on that idea for any company Tesla will I am sure get a nasty gram from the regulator saying you can try anything you want but you will never enforce this against us be clear on that I don't know you know, you're right on a practical level. Really, like, what's Tesla going to do? Are they going to start suing customers who complain about something on Twitter? Um, are they going to try and shut down a Tesla user discussion group? I, I don't know. I, if you game it out, a lot of it just seems like it's not going to be productive, or there's no practical way to do it, and it just it doesn't pass the smell test with consumers. So I can't imagine now that this is out there. I had no idea Tesla was even doing this, but I can't imagine that's really going to stick. Um, but you know, at, at least in theory, at the start, if Tesla is going to try and enforce this, it does fall to compliance and legal officers at the company to try and do that. I just think that um, sometimes what sounds good in one part of the company, compliance officers and marketing people, might have some natural common ground where they might want to tell the rest of the business, think through how this really is going to look and how it's going to work. Because I don't see how that works well.
1: So, so it seems like the automotive industry oftentimes shows up on our list of sort of mangling kind of how they deal with, with some of these crises. Um, I mean, you know, you know, just, you know, the Tesla incident that you're, that you're referencing, um, GM is still, I think very much top of mind last year, the biggest corporate crisis of the year that we, um, re-ranked as number one, was, was Volkswagen. I mean, is there anything in particular about the automotive industry that that you see or that, that might lend itself to, to these types of corporate behavior issues?
0: Um, I think partly it is just the sheer size of these organizations. Um, you know, Volkswagen, you know, I, I think it's more that they were just so big that the misconduct they did Could be done on a rapidly and vast scale, almost worldwide, because it's a worldwide company. Um, Tesla, you know, it almost sounds to me more like a sort of a a semi-secretive tech company that really wants to keep its hands on its intellectual property more than an automotive industry. I know that cars are what they make, but you know, Elon Musk is very much about pulling new depths of technology possibilities, and that kind of strikes me as more along the lines of what that particular misstep is. Um, But, you know, you do see that large companies, whether they're Volkswagen, oil companies, um, pharmaceutical companies, or other, half the time, the problem is just, they're so big and so sprawling, they don't actually know what they are doing in every far-flung corner of their enterprise. And then it catches them them. flat-footed. That's kind of what happens.
1: I think one of the things that maybe I think you've said it is that transparency is sort of democratized reputation, and it seems like you know when the companies get caught, then they've changed and I think when you and I've previously spoken you said well that and that's fine because at least at least they've changed, and what's you know some of the good that's come come from these turnarounds but on the we've also noticed i mean there is a competitive advantage to being brave and taking a stand and, and being vocal on, on some issues, especially, I think, in, in this environment where consumers are starting to sort of expect some sort of corporate social responsibility as part of your, your business, I mean, not as a, as a nice to have. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm curious if you've seen this, this shift in, in the way corporations sort of think about being good corporate citizens, if it's now if it's no longer sort of a nice to have, if now it's, 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 part, of, it's part of the business model.
0: I think you see that in, in dribs and drabs here in the United States. You see it more pervasively in North America. Uh, I'm sorry, you see it more pervasively in Europe. But in North America, you will see companies in dribs and drabs doing it. Intel, for example, um, they are subject to the conflict minerals rule, which is if you are a manufacturer, you have to disclose whether any of certain materials in your products are mined from Central Africa where they might be subsidizing or feeding into uh, warlords in the Congo. This is a pain in the neck it's not easy to do it's not a bad idea but it's just difficult to do and a lot of companies at first didn't really like the prospect of it. Intel sort of turned it around and launched a mini-website within their bigger corporate website about everything Intel does for ethical sourcing. Um, It's easy to find, it's easy to see. I would still suspect, and I don't know enough about Intel's conflict minerals efforts to say this definitively, but I would still suspect from time to time they probably encounter some difficulty. Are we really sure, are we not? But they're very upfront that hey, we think this is important. We're trying to root it all out. We're going to keep on doing that until we solve it. You see examples like that in North America right now. You've seen it with um, Nike has really turned around with sweatshop labor. They have exacting standards now to make sure that they do not have sweatshop labor turn up in their uh, supply chain. Um, but in Europe, in contrast, corporate sustainability efforts they're much more seen as part and parcel of being a publicly traded company over there. That's something that you have to invest in, disclose, work at. I think we'll see that become more mainstream in the United States, but we are behind Europe in that particular front.
1: So, you know, in addition to, to sort of supply chain, there's also like human rights issues, right? And I think I think in the UK last year was like Sports Direct got into a lot of trouble for... Um, not adequately paying um, employees, and then of course there's the FIFA thing. And so, like an organization like FIFA, how do you how do you rebuild credibility and trust when it just seems like the hits just keep coming?
0: Yeah. With FIFA in particular, I almost am at a loss of words for how they would do that. I mean, you it's you're asking how do people move the pyramids from Egypt to you know the other side of Africa? It's just such an enormous challenge FIFA has, um, short of total house cleaning, which I know that they're going to try to be doing and rebuilding everything. But that's just the FIFA is on a whole other scale of how to repair its uh, reputation. But one point that I think is interesting is you, know, you mentioned human rights, and there is also transparency in the supply chain. I think a lot of regulators and NGOs especially in Europe and to a lesser extent in the US they're pushing us to the point where that's really gonna merge into being one and the same sort of a thing Um, in the UK they have the Modern Slavery Act now where pretty much any significant business that's based in the UK or doing business in the UK so a lot of US companies will be swept up by the UK Modern Slavery Act they're gonna have to disclose Efforts they are making to root out uh, modern slavery in their supply chain, all the way down. It doesn't say you can't use supply uh, slavery, or you know we will have the CEO in stockades and have him or her stoned. It's just saying you have to tell us what you're doing. Once the company let it lets it all hang out there, if it's not doing much, that will be painfully obvious. And there already are NGOs setting up uh, benchmarking um, projects where they're going to see what companies are disclosing about what they're trying to do. If you're trying to do more, then this benchmark will rank you higher and everybody will see it. And in theory, you would get better access to um, investment dollars. There's a lot of socially responsible investors out there who would want to know about this. And if you're not trying that hard, you're going to float down to the bottom of the benchmark and then in theory, um, investment groups would be able to really stick it to a company after several years. You know, this has been an ongoing problem. Why aren't you rising up to the top? And that sort of stuff. Those are conversations that would not have happened five or ten years ago. And are they about compliance? Are they about marketing? Are they about business conduct? I mean, yes to all of it. They are all really going to be one and the same. And I think we're going to see more of that in the future.
1: So, because Europe is um, so far ahead of the U.S., I mean, what do you think? I mean, what do you think would have to happen in the U.S. for for corporations to keep to, or even just for the regulatory environment to catch up to to what's going on in Europe?
0: You know, I think part of it will touch U.S. companies, anyways. Um, mm-hmm. Like I mentioned before, the U.K. Modern Slavery Act applies to any business. Mm-hmm that gets more than 36 million pounds of revenue in England every year. So that's virtually every large company in the United States does more than whatever that would be, about mm-hmm. $55 million in business a year. So that's Nike, that's Microsoft, that's um, Walmart. There's, there's bunches. They're all going to be um, They They will all be under the jurisdiction of this law. There will be other extraterritorial efforts that are going to sweep up US companies anyways. Um, I think the other thing that is going to happen, you know, when you had mentioned before the democratization of a company's reputation. So somebody else, I don't remember who, but somebody had used that phrase talking to me about these human rights benchmarks where it will be more and more easy for outside groups to hold your reputation up to public scrutiny and you know, it doesn't matter whether the company likes it or not. It's not like they can turn off what people say about them on Twitter or Facebook. This is just going to happen. So you might as well join them because you are not going to be able to beat them. Um, now, specific to the United States, would we ever adopt something like the Modern Slavery Act here? state of California has already done something similar. Uh, will we see it at a national level? I'm Barely dour on Congress being able to do anything in the near future. So I don't know about that. But you know, California is essentially doing the same sort of thing with supply chain transparency, and it's the same sort of maneuver that if you do any sizable amount of business in California, you're swept up in the rule. That's virtually every company in the in the United States. So we'll probably see it penetrate the US economic world through those kind of
1: Let's talk for a moment about social media. Um, you know, one of the instances um, of sort of crises we saw last year was Nestle in India, right? When they um, sort of rejected this idea that they're that I think it was the Maggie noodles were were unsafe, and they took to social media to deny this. I think they even set up a FAQ page denying this. So I mean, they they had all of this this like sort of digital footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they ended up having to do a U-turn on it. And when they did that, it was just so, I mean, I think everybody's jaw just dropped because because of all of the resources put into denying it. Um, I mean, it, how do you see companies using social media around sort of communicating, um, you know, being good corporate citizens, um, in some cases compliance, and then... I mean, what did you think about something where where you go, where you vehemently deny it and then you have to turn around like like Nestle did with the Maggie Noodles last year?
0: Uh, You know, how do I think corporations are using social media on this front? Mm -hmm. It kind of in a hit or miss way, frankly. um, You know, I think to your point, social media is a very powerful tool to make your argument very persuasively problem with Nestle was that they made the wrong argument and then they had to turn around Uh, if social media is a magnifier then you really need to be sure that what facts you're putting out there are correct from the start because it just magnified the pain of the U-turn when Nestle did have to make it Um, oddly enough you know when I was talking before about the Modern Slavery Act Nestle is one company where They had been accused of, uh, I think, slave labor off the coast of Thailand to collect shrimp that ultimately wound up in cat food Nestle manufactured and put on store shelves in Europe and North America. And in that instance, Nestle kind of got ahead of it. And they did this through various marketing and communication campaigns, including social media. But Nestle just turned around in that instance and said, yeah, you know what? We do have a problem. We don't like it, but... We're a $10 billion company with hundreds of thousands of workers in this huge supply chain all over the place. We're not going to deny that, yeah, this probably is true. We're going to work to eradicate it, but we haven't eradicated it today, but we're aware of it. And then they've launched a big program to talk about um, human trafficking in the supply chain. That is an example of how to stay on top of it well and... I would applaud Nestle for just basically admitting that they have a problem and trying to solve it. Um, you know, the noodles incident in India is just, it's a painful example of the magnifying effect of social media. But that's what's driving a lot of these discussions. I think companies know if they don't participate in these conversations, other groups are going to, uh, that are very attuned to social, uh, to uh, business misconduct issues. They're going to use social media, and the magnifying effect is going to work for them, too. So it's not like companies have a choice. I've seen some companies do it much better than others. I've seen them be well aware of how to use social media from a PR perspective. And then getting back to the point about you have to know what your facts are, that's closer to my core group of uh, people I deal with, the compliance and legal officers. I mean, they are charged with finding fact first and then figuring out what to do with it and if you don't get that straight first the communications people are going to have a really difficult time later on.
1: I mean it, it almost sounds like there's some um, nuance in in the geography in terms of what I mean it sounds I mean we've kind of talked about this already but in terms of what a corporation seems like or feels like they can get away with um, you know something in Something that might be held under or be perceived to be held under a lot of scrutiny in in in, in the United States or in the, in the UK. I mean, there might be a perception that oh, well, we could probably get away with this in 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 another part of the world. Um, I mean, do you? But I mean, in this in, in this day and age where information there there's no boundaries around information, it seems like that would be an unwise sort of mindset to have.
0: Well, you, yeah. I won't deny that occasionally people might say that and be correct. That might happen. Um, I'm hard pressed to think of an example where it is, but I won't dismiss that maybe it's right. But um, a better way to think of it, or a way that compliance officers typically would think about it, or talk with other parts of their company in the conversations that go on, you know, people would say, oh, sure. Bribery is really frowned upon in the United States and Europe, but if you're in some emerging market, that's just part of the culture, and that's the phrase that they use. And it's just part of the culture. We have to pay bribes, and this drives compliance officers up a wall. Um, I have yet to find anybody in any culture anywhere who thinks that being hit up for a bribe is a fun time or that they like paying a bribe. Uh, It is never part of the culture. It is just sort of the the challenge that people want to overcome. But, you know, to say that China is riven with bribery is true. But to say then that it's part of the culture. I've never met a Chinese national who likes paying bribes. Um, it gets a little fuzzy. A good example of the fuzziness is the trouble that Walmart encountered with its operations in Mexico. And when the New York Times back in 2012 published a big, huge expose that There was widespread bribing to get um, permits to open Walmart facilities in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America. Um, You know, I don't know enough about how business is done in Mexico, but, you know, there are distinctions between what is an actual bribe and what is paying a local guy to stand in line at the local town hall to get the permit because you, the executive, don't have enough time to do this. And we are four years now into this big expose that Walmart was so corrupt. Well, Walmart has not been charged with anything. Walmart has anyways done a tremendous amount to improve its ethics and compliance uh, operations and procedures. And there are many people who do argue that actually what Walmart was doing in Mexico was not a violation of the law there, and it really was not a violation of the law here. It was just something that sort of metastasized into this belief that Walmart was paying bribes all over the place in Mexico. And that's not necessarily true. I don't know if they did in some places, or perhaps not in others. But like I said, we're four years on. And a lot of the big ballyhoo about Walmart back when this story broke, that hasn't really emerged. And you, know, you do have to think through. There's a real challenge here sometimes that what seems like bribery to us, it may or may not be bribery elsewhere, or we may be misunderstanding it. It can be very difficult to get a <laughs> true sense of what are the conduct issues here, and are they breaking the law, or are they not, do they look bad or not, and how to unravel it.
1: So uh, let's um, step back for a minute, actually, and, and, um, and go back to, to social media, because you know uh, a lot of you know, what, what spreads social media is sort of the channel that a lot of information kind of gets spread um, globally um, and why it's so difficult, right. To contain um, some sort of ethics issue or, or, or crises um, geographically. So, I mean, do you think that most companies are prepared to handle sort of what, you know, what happens when, when consumers really grab onto something online? And I asked this because last year, uh, at the Global PR Summit, you know, uh, we had a representative from HSBC there, and he, you know, flat out said that they, as much as they thought that they were adequately prepared to handle uh, a crisis in, in the social media, you know, age, uh, their, their tactics were really, it was, it was sort of formulaic old school crisis playbook stuff, and that's why things got so out of hand. So, I, I mean, do you, do you think that companies are actually prepared to handle um, the, the, the onslaught of sort of scrutiny and criticism they will get in, on, in, in the digital era when they aren't good corporate citizens?
0: Uh, no, probably not. Um, I think that some of the consumer-facing businesses are probably more in position to handle that than others, but if you are a big manufacturer... Um, or if you are a big software company, for example, or you know more like business-to-business uh, players, and you suddenly have this public scrutiny that is really more consumer-driven, no, you're not going to necessarily be in position for that because you're not playing to your audience. Um, there is a certain immediacy to social media's calls for change that you know don't work with corporate compliance and legal. Um, processes, which often take years. Like I said, you know, with Walmart still four years on, we don't know when that case is ever going to get resolved. Um, But, you know, social media is much more about now, now, now. And I think that a lot of conduct issues, just finding out the facts takes forever in social media terms. And I, I have a certain bit of sympathy for a lot of companies because it's not like the companies themselves are doing this. It's not like the CEO and the board and the senior leaders are plotting to be, be a misconduct, uh, engage in misconduct and be terrible citizens. It's more like they stumble into it or some employee they don't know about has done something that they thought wouldn't happen or maybe some sort of uh, circumstance aligns where somebody commits misconduct in a way they hadn't expected. Um, and then the companies are caught you know, kind of unprepared, trying to figure out what actually did happen, you know, did we break a law or not. Sometimes the company is not breaking the law because the law itself is kind of weak and kind of bad and, you know, you might think that therefore you're not doing anything wrong, but if the public is other fickle and, you know, quick to change tastes, you, you get caught unprepared for it.
1: So one one last question, uh, Max. I, I I know you you have a you have to go soon. Um, do you have any insights into sort of the type of relationship that sort of compliance or, or risk officers have with CCOs or whoever it is that's that that's chiefly responsible with managing a company's reputation within an organization?
0: Um, you know, they are aware that in crisis moments, uh, they need a very close relationship with the communications officer. And compliance officers, you know, certainly when something blows up, they go through a phase of where it's a crisis and they need to work hand in glove with the communications team. And they know this. And they do try to keep clear lines of communication. Uh, But, you know, ultimately there's always another big crisis and the communications people, that's their job to deal with that. Compliance officers, after the initial crisis has passed, still have a much longer glide path of cleanup that they need to do for misconduct. Uh, All sorts of very mundane remediation issues that they're in charge of and um, you know, so they're always looking to have clear lines of communication open with the communications officer. I would say also for any real marketing heads who are out there as opposed to just communications, Compliance officers think about the marketing function a lot, because that is, in some industries, that's really where a lot of the infractions happen. And they worry an awful lot about training marketing people, um, convincing marketing people that it's okay to take a step back or a pause and think about the ethical implications of something before they lunge forward with a new plan. Uh, They think a lot about how to train marketing people effectively. Uh, they think a lot about how to get the marketing function to a place overall where they want to bring compliance in ahead of time to talk through what they want to try rather than be in that oh crap sort of a moment after something is blown up in the company's face. Um, there's a lot of anti-bribery risk that happens in the marketing function, particularly in healthcare, um, particularly in retail particularly in defense and government contracting and construction services, things like that. Um, So compliance officers think an awful lot about marketing sort of on an ongoing day-to-day basis. And then they know they need to be working closely with, have good relations with the communications people for when that disaster inevitably happens. And at big companies, it always will.
1: Very interesting, Matt. Thanks, thanks for joining. There's a, a lot, lot to unpack here. It sounds like we could, we could probably have another conversation, some point down the road, uh, to look uh, at this up and even more closely. Um, well, thank you for joining us, Matt.
0: Happy to do it, Arthur.
1: And that concludes another episode of the Echo Chamber. Thanks again to our guest today, and thank you to our production team at Marketers for DC. And thank you to our sponsor, March Communications, who also produced the podcast Hacks and Flax. We will be back again soon with another episode. Until then. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of
2: weeks.